Okay, today is December the 16th, 2010, and we will not have our communion Sunday the first week in January. This didn't work out that particular date, so we're going to have it the second Sunday in January. Not the first, but the second. Anybody know what that date is? The 9th of January. Is that right? Okay. I don't know. My calendar just goes to December here. <clears throat> Let's see. Yeah, there's not another one under it. It's the 9th. Okay. It'll be the 9th of January. And tell other folks so that they'll know also. <laughs> you got an idea? The natives might be restless with no food here, though. I don't know. Okay, let's uh, prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us never take for granted your grace. You've given us this day. You've given us this local church. You've given us the great system of perception, your mighty word, the filling of the Holy Spirit, who is our mentor. Everything that we need. And we're prone to take things for granted, so we want to stop and thank you now for this day, the opportunity to feed upon your word yet another time. We desperately need doctrine just as we need the air that we breathe. So easy for us to get distracted. And yet your word is very clear. You are a hope and you are our salvation. So we pray that you will help us to drink in your word this evening in full measure. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into our text, I had a couple of little excerpts here that had to do with Speaking boldly or proudly, remember that in our scripture? Paul was bragging on the Thessalonian church because uh, they were persevering and their, their faith was even increasing under adversity and pressure. And we were talking about pride, that it can be a good thing or a bad thing, and that's the same with boasting. And I found these two little gems that I thought you might find interesting. The first one is called Baby Food for Prisoners. Few prison rituals are more common than putting a troublesome prisoner on bread and water. Then came Dale Carson, a former FBI agent, to Florida as sheriff of Duval County in Jacksonville. 
he discovered that young toughs gloried in being put on bread and water because it proves how tough they were. They even brag about the bread and water treatment. So Carlson substituted baby food. They eat it because they are hungry, but they don't brag about it. One day usually gets them on their best behavior, observed Carson. I love people who are, use their, their wit about them. My, my dad had a, that type of wit. He came at me from every direction. You can't imagine how many ways he had of making me behave. Very, I, you, you don't see these things in a book. They just think about what would be the best remedy. So you don't see any prisoners, tough guys, bragging about eating baby food. <laughs> Probably get them in trouble. The other one is God could not sink this ship. And then it, in quotation... God himself could not sink this ship, boasted a deckhand above the RMS Titanic, 1912. The men who built the ship, the civilized world, the uh, credulous public, all believed and boasted that the ship was unsinkable. But God was not mocked. It is said that when the captain gave the order to abandon ship, many passengers simply could not believe that the Titanic could possibly sink and refuse to board the lifeboats. And the crew was almost criminally complacent. So 1,502 men, women, and children plunged into their deaths. I think that any time man wants to strut about and think that they can do something that God cannot control, it's doomed from the beginning. And that was on his maiden voyage. I believe God was sending a message. Okay, <clears throat> open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 1. Did I say first? We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm amazed at how much doctrine are in these brief epistles. Just because they're short doesn't mean that they're not powerful. 1 Thessalonians only has five chapters. 2 Thessalonians only has three. And yet, chock full of information. Let's start with verse 3 in our Bibles. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because you, your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we, are, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give 
relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. We probably won't get any further than that tonight, so we're going to go to our notes. And one of the things that the New Testament says over and over again, it's a, it's a common theme, and it is, it is an encouragement, it's, it's instructive that we are to endure. Keep on enduring. Many of the verses that speak of salvation, in fact, most of them that speak of salvation in the New Testament, are not talking about eternal salvation. They're talking about being delivered. We live in a wicked world. It's the devil's world. We are in enemy territory. Have you ever looked at the front of our bulletin? When was the last time you read that? That's what it says. We are in enemy territory. And we are going to suffer. But you might as well make that suffering count. So I'm talking about undeserved suffering. And we have a very strong incentive in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. You can turn in your Bible so you can look up on the board. If we endure, and that's the third class conditional clause, maybe we will and maybe we won't, but if we do, we shall also reign with him. If, he, we, if, he, if we deny him, he will also deny us. There are many believers, or at least professing believers, who are not grace-oriented that believe that if you deny Jesus Christ, he's going to deny, deny you entrance into heaven. And I ask you, is that a possibility? Can God deny anyone who has his righteousness and eternal life entrance into heaven? And the answer, of course, absolutely not. Then what follows is another question that seems to uh, be one that people ask from time to time. Okay, if you have eternal life and you have God's righteousness, is it possible for you to deny Christ? Of course it is. People do it all the time, and I'm talking about believers do it all the time. They do it in small ways, but some of them go big time. Some believers will actually try to recant their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They may even, they might even get into another faith, such as Buddhism or Islam, or they might turn into an atheist and say that they don't believe in Christ anymore. I read an article not about a week or so ago. It was somewhat surprising to me at the number of evangelical pastors who have converted to Catholicism. Now, that's kind of shocking to me. How can anyone who is a pastor that has any knowledge whatsoever of God's plan and his testimony in his word, especially in the New Testament, convert to Catholicism? Well, Catholicism is a false religion. And anyone who embraces its tenets and they are depending upon the sacraments and the church and all the other things in order to be saved. Are These people are not saved, no matter even if they go through all the procedures that the Catholic Church 
demands, they're still not saved. But if one of these pastors were saved and converted to Catholicism, they are denying Christ. But according to this, if we deny him, he also will deny us. I don't have it here. So we have to go to the next verse because you can't give this verse without the next verse. I should have put the next verse on there. So turn, if you're in 1 Thessalonians, it's just a brief, just a short distance to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I guess there's three main verses here. I guess I might as well give them all to you to put it all in context. What I was talking about, though, is the enduring. These the Thessalonian believers were enduring. Their faith was growing. Their love was growing under great pressure and still growing. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now, that's the first class conditional clause. We all died with Christ on the cross. That's called retroactive positional truth. That's one reason that we are no longer under the dominion of sin. Because when Christ died on the cross, not only did he take care of our sin problem with regards to the penalty of sin, he also broke the back of the old sin nature. And we died to sin when he went to the cross, positionally speaking. So if that happened, and it did, we shall also live with him. We're going to live with him forever in a resurrection body. Verse 12, if we endure. And what, that, what is in, in, in context there, and you can write it in your Bible here if you don't have it there. If we endure suffering, you might even put you period as period. That's undeserved suffering. If we endure undeserved suffering, we shall also reign with him. What is reigning with him? Is that not a reward? So what is it, what is it talking about here? Rewards. Keep that in mind as we go to the next, to the next verse. Well, it, actually, it's in verse 12. I just didn't give you the whole uh, verse. Verse 12 also says, If we deny him, he will also deny us. Well, I, no, I have that part there. Okay. He will also deny us. Now, what is he going to deny? Is he going to not deny us access to heaven, which a lot of people take? No. He's going to deny us rewards. In the previous verse, it already mentions rewards. That's the context. You have to stick with the context. He's, he's going to deny us rewards if we deny him. But now, verse 13, which I didn't have, which I wish I would have put in there. If we are faithless, and that word faithless is Apostuamen, the a is an alpha negative, means no faith. We're not faithful. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What is that talking about? Even though we may deny him, we are not faithful. We are scoundrels. We're the low-class scum of the earth, but we still have his own righteousness and eternal life all the assets that God gave us, we have still guaranteed entrance into heaven because He is faithful. His promises are faithful. He promises that anybody who believes in Him has what? Eternal life. 
It's irrevocable. You can't take back eternal life. So he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. In his word, throughout the word, it's talking about salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone. It's in uh, faith alone in Christ alone. That's what it's all about. So this is a very strong, eternal, secure uh, verse, even though some of them try to turn it around. You have to completely deny the context to pervert this verse into saying that if you deny Christ, you're not going to heaven. The Bible never says that. As a believer, if you have... See, that's why in verse 11 it says, For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. And only believers die with Christ positionally when they believe in Jesus Christ. It's one of the things that happens. So enduring and reigning go together. And enduring is very, very important. That's what so much of the New Testament is about. Now think about this. We were talking about suffering. If there were no suffering, there could be no rewards. It is, the, it is in the refiner's fire of testing that the quality of our metal is determined. So it takes suffering. Furthermore, if there were no suffering, we would get too comfortable and our hope for the large return could falter. That's one reason for, uh, for suffering is for God to help re remind us of what is really important. And it's our relationship with Him. And all of us have a tendency, when everything is going well, there's no suffering, we tend to be farthest from Him. But when are you closest? Think in your own life. When is it that you were closest to the Lord? Isn't it when, it, when you're in suffering? When there's adversity? That's when we're closest to Him. Furthermore, you have to go through suffering in order to be tested. If there was no suffering, there'd be no rewards. The present suffering of the godly is often balanced by a celebration of the glories to come and are by an assurance that God will punish the persecutors of the righteous. So the suffering that you may go through is balanced by your celebration of what is yet to come. You're celebrating in your mind. Well, it's bad now. Things break down now. There is pain now. But according to God's promises, it's not going to last. And I can't wait until there's no more sorrow, no more tears. The old things have passed away. We see Jesus Christ face to face. We see all our loved ones who have already gone by. What a celebration that will be. That's what we need to be thinking about when we're enduring undeserved suffering. Concentrate on His promises. That offsets. Plus, there's the extra bonus. Those who are harming you, hurting you, offending you, treating you unjustly are going to get theirs. Now, we don't want to be vindictive about this. But the Bible tells us that this is going to happen. And this means that we don't have to take care of it because God will. <clears throat> James chapter 1, verse 12 said, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
You can't love the Lord if you don't know Him. And the crown, some people think, well, okay, I get a crown. They think about going into Burger King and getting one of those cardboard crowns, and what's the big deal? Well, it's not even that kind of crown to begin with because uh, it's a Stephanos-type crown, like a wreath. It's not a corona like a, the Lord would have the corona. We have just a wreath. And someone might say, oh, that's even worse. At least a crown, you know, it has some substance to it. You have a little bit of dignity if you're going around with a crown. Uh, these girls in these pageants and beauty contests and all, they wear a little crown. What do they call it? A tiara? Uh, it, that's a, isn't that a crown? I mean, that's a... The point is, the things that go with this crown, our minds can't even get around. Great. Re- Do you think that God is going to give some kind of Mickey Mouse reward for all the suffering you've gone through and trusting Him? Not hardly. This is just a representation of what goes with it. And when you go into the, into the isagogics of that with regards to ancient history, that wreath that the w- winners of the games, like we would relate it to the Olympic games, these were the Ithmian games, uh, they would cut a hole in the wall and a, a, a gate just for them to go through, and they would seal it up to honor them, and they would have plaques. They would have to pay no more taxes. They had all kind of monetary gifts, tons of things that they were awarded. And that is in the physical realm. Can you imagine what the reward will be with the crown of life in heaven when God, who owns everything, there is no limit to His graciousness and His ability. We can't even begin to think how wonderful that's going to be, those who get the crown of life. But what? there's the condition. What does it say? Blessed is the man who what? Perseveres. Endures. First Peter 1, 6b and 7. You have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's very important, that last part. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, because the verse that we're we're going over tonight is going to reference that same time frame. There is a time for everything. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And there's a time for us to have the glory and the honor and all these things that the revelation of Jesus Christ will get there. But your faith must be tested. And it is tested in the fire, in the refiner's fire, to see what kind of metal you really have. And that which is in, endures, this says, is more precious than gold. Gold has intrinsic value. It doesn't matter where you find gold, whether it's in the crown of the Queen of England or whether it's in the mouth of a native, a gold crown in there. Anywhere you find it, it's valuable, isn't it? And it doesn't, it's not like paper money, which is not really even money, that its, its value goes up and down and everything. Gold is always going to be valuable. And though in this it's saying the proof of your faith, when you go through the trial and you prove faithful that you have applied doctrine, you're trusting the Lord, your faith resting, all these things happen. He said that is more valuable 
than the most precious physical commodity on earth. Now, in today, I don't know, they may say platinum or whatever, but in the day in which this was written, it was the gold that was so valuable. In Solomon's day, Solomon was so wealthy that he got bored with silver. They would bring literally tons of silver as tribute to him every year. But even the gold, there was also tons of gold. God is glorified when believers bear up under the adversity by depending on His grace, wonderful promises, and doctrine He supplies. It is only by His power that believers are able to endure. Now what we're seeing is God is going to glorify us because He's sharing His glory with us, but it's really God that should get all the glory. Because anything that we are able to produce, the character, the spiritual, the spiritual maturity, is not because of us. It's because God supplied graciously everything that we needed to get through that test, the knowledge, the power, the direction, everything. How can any believer endure the pressures of the 21st century without utilizing God's power that is available through the filling of the Holy Spirit and His Word. Anybody know? We have a lot of pressures. We have different pressures than they had when this Scripture was written. They didn't have the same kind of stress that we have. They lived in their little neighborhood, and they knew pretty much what was going on there. But you get <coughs> 50 miles away from where they lived, they didn't have a clue what was going on. So they didn't have to be bothered with it. But what, what happens to us? How many of you watch the news today? Well, if you watch the news, it's worldwide news, and you get everybody's problems. That's what the news is. Very little good news when you watch the news. It's a test for me. I try not to gr grind my teeth. Because anybody who has any doctrine can see the propaganda and the manipulations that come across, and it's just mostly bad news. <coughs> So it's by His power that believers are able to endure. You understand that, His power. Try to endure on your power and see how long you can last. Try to go through undeserved suffering without praying and see what happens. Undeserved suffering will put you on your knees. That's where we need to be. Verse 6 and 7. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels. There are times when we feel justified in taking revenge on those who, offended, who have offended us or sinned against us. However, the Bible does not allow us to take revenge. Let's be honest. We all want revenge from time to time, don't we? Anybody that's married knows that. Don't they? Huh? And it goes both ways. I'm not talking to the wives or the husbands. I'm talking to both of them. It's just when you live with someone, you really get to know them. And when you get, really get to know someone, there will be opportunities where you will be ready to take revenge. And this is, this, we're talking about people that you love more than anybody else. So those that you can't stand really take some power. 
Romans 12:19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We have one of the young people in our midst tonight, and when I was teaching this, I kept telling them, what is it that we, we are to do? And I would go like this, and they would say, leave it in the Lord's hands. How many say, what times we say that, Ashley? Over and over. Remember that? Leave it in the Lord's hands. That's what we need to do. That's what this verse is about. It's easy to say sometimes it's not that easy to do. Especially when you see opportunities, things pop in your head. Oh boy, can I really snipe? I can get them here. I can gouge them here. Boy, I could say this. I could, make, I could embarrass them. I could put them on the spot. These, where do these things come from? They come from within. It's our nature to be that way. The main reason we don't wait for the Lord to take care of those who have harmed us is because we either forget or don't believe that God is just. What does the first? What does it say here? God is just. Dikaios. This is the first, first word here. He will punish those who have harmed us, but will do it his way, and in his time. Have you ever thought that you knew better than God on how to take care of people? Well. If you think that, you don't, have the, you don't have the resource to do what God can do. Look at this. Deuteronomy 32, 41 through 43. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives, from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nations, with, the, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Well, the, in context, this is talking about the Israelites, about his people, but it's the same for us also. Can you release the, your flashing sword and make your arrows drunk with blood? You might be able to do that in your mind, but you can't do it. Can you devour the flesh with the blood of the slain of the captives? Look at the long-haired leaders of the enemy. You see, the Jews didn't have long hair. They knew better. I'm talking about the men. What is long hair on a woman? It's a beauty to her. It's an honor to her. Psalm 94, 21 through 23. They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge, and he has brought back their wickedness upon them. And will destroy them in their evil. The Lord I God will destroy them. Why? Because we have a just God. Zechariah 2.5 For I, 
declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, that referring to Jerusalem in the millennium, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now following that, just three verses later, Zechariah 2, 8 through 9, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them, so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The apple of his eye, that's referring to Israel. Actually, it's the pupil, literally, but we, it's translated. The, the pupil of your eye is the center, it's the focus. It's, and it's somehow it got to be known as the apple of the eye. <coughs> Is God able to take care of business? I believe so, according to these verses. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Now, that's a promise. Now, the word for trouble, some verses say adversity, is flipsis. Don't say that and stand too close to someone. That's T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. It's a noun accused of singular feminine. Listen to what it means means to crush, to press, compress, squeeze, to break, tribulation, trouble, anguish, affliction. That's what's in store for those who trouble God's children. Here's a few verses. Psalm 3.7 Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek, Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. I don't know about you, but that just conjures up a, a, a frightful sight in my mind. Have you ever seen anybody with broken teeth? I, I, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm talking about not knocked out. I'm talking about broken halfway through. I've seen it. I was in construction. And I played football. And I've seen broken teeth. And it just like, it, it's, it's eerie. It's like, Fingernails on the blackboard when you see it. I mean, you just think how much that must hurt. Psalm 10:15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until thou find none. So we got breaking teeth. We got breaking arms. Isaiah 49:26. And I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. And they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all the flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Do you think God is serious about taking vengeance on those who would harm His children? This is vivid, stark language. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 58. It's a short psalm. Psalm 58. For the choir director set to out. Toss <laughs> head. 
that, that's a T-S, uh, t a s h tasheth. That meaning means, do not destroy. It's a miktam of David. A miktam, actually, miktam means a covering, and it came to mean a protection from enemies. It's also referred to as a golden psalm. Miktam. See, we're in Hebrew, we're, we're back there after church on Sundays learning Hebrew. And they have H's in the weirdest places, don't they, Vidal? M-I-K-H-T-A-M. Now, we can say, we can say miktam very easily, can't we? We try to say miktam. It seems like those who speak Hebrews need to have an eye protection. You have to figure that one out. <clears throat> okay, here we go. Do you indeed speak righteous, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? Now, this is very stark sarcasm that he's using here. And he's really coming down on the judges for their in, injustice in their courts. No, in your heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears. You know, when they have a cobra in a pot and the guy plays a little flute, little tutor there. Um, this is a cobra that doesn't hear him. In other words, they're not, they are not concerned with authority, which the cobra kind of succumbs to the, the, the music. Verse 5, so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful caster of spells. Verse 6, here we get into it now. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as, a headless, as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along. Now this is this is um, pretty strong stuff. Have you ever poured salt on a snail? Huh? That's what he's essentially saying. Let him <clears throat> let him be a snail that melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriage of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind like the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now, you might think, Hmm. Well, that's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? You won't find anything like this in the New Testament because this is an imprecatory psalm. 
an imprecatory psalm is like an imprecatory prayer where they would ask God to just obliterate, break their teeth, break their arm, like a, like a snail, melt away, just wreak havoc on them. That was bona fide in the Old Testament, but we live under another type of principles. What are we to do to our enemies? Love our enemies. What are we to show them? Impersonal or unconditional love. So these are not for us. However, the reason I, we read that is for you to show that in our verse 6 here, in verse 6 and 7, what it's showing is that God is going to take care of the retribution. They're going to get what they deserve, and we are going to get, get blessed by it. One of the blessings will be seeing the, those who hate God, hate grace, hate the Bible, hate you, hate everything that's good, get their upcomings. Y'all understand everything I said there about the imprecatory psalm. It's asking the Lord to destroy someone. Now this is <coughs> put this back up. This is not a repudiation of the mercy of God in favor of a law of retaliation. In other words, these sound like this is a merciless God. Mercy is not only available to the church, but also to the persecutors of the church. As Paul's own life illustrated. But the existence of mercy does not nullify the validity of justice. For those who reject God's offer of mercy in the gospel will receive justice at the hands of a just God. And that came from uh, D.M. Martin, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, New American Commentary. I thought that was good for those who think, well, what happened to God's mercy? God's mercy is still available to these people, but they don't want it. They have rejected God. For the righteous, it is somehow easier to suffer the hand, at the hands of evil with the knowledge that the evil persecutor will not escape, but will be brought to justice. Isn't that true? This is what helps us not take vengeance. This is what helps us not to get even. It's not our job to get even. Our job is to leave it in the Lord's hands, trust Him. He is just. He will take care of it. And we have to trust that. We have to believe that He'll do it. And when we do that, these promises should be a source of comfort to us. Besides, if you want to take revenge, it takes a lot of energy. It takes planning. It takes sometimes uh, a lot of logistics takes a lot of thought, takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. It's just simply not worth it. The victim's temporary affliction makes it easier to bear, to bear when viewed against the eternal sufferings of the afflictor. The one that afflicts it afflicts you with suffering. If they are an unbeliever, are going to get way and above more than you can ever try to give them. <coughs> The good part is in verse 7, and give relief to you who are troubled as to us as well. So what are those that are going to, they're going to get the best if you leave in Paul as well? We only verify that. Oh, 1 Corinthians 17. On what provide escape? Those who 
But I believe his arms are longer than ours. There's, there's, be humble. Acknowledge is left to hold you to do that you have. This last part in. Then when the Lord Jesus has angels. Powerful angels. Remember, we're in Christ. And with the angel, this is, this voice is not doing it. This, the voice is going to sound like that. Christ is going to claim. Next verse. Rapture? No. So we, both of these eschatological, their context, the whole, that's what they're really about. Future things that are going to happen. And he was addressing issues that had undermined the confidence and security because they thought they were already in the tribulation. They thought that the day of the Lord had already begun. And that's one reason Paul wrote this epistle was to straighten all that out. And when we get into chapter 2, he goes into detail explaining why it's impossible for them to already be in the day of the Lord, be in the tribulation. They thought they had missed the rapture. Wouldn't you be a little bit uh, excited if you thought the... There's something I saw on YouTube one time. It was a, a group about this size, maybe a little bigger, and they were all sitting listening to the Word of God being taught, and all of a sudden, just about like that. Now I woke everybody up. Uh, <laughs> and the next thing you knew, there was about four or five people there. All the rest of them were gone. Wouldn't you be a little bit perturbed if that happened? I mean, you ought to know what happened. But it's too late then. Of course, um, we have to be very deliberate and be ready to discuss the details when we're talking about Christ's coming because there are so many people who are confused about the yet two comings of Jesus Christ. There is a multitude of people that don't have it right, and yet there's no excuse for it because when you really study it, you see that there are keys. I was teaching the young people yesterday about... Uh, Baptism and the difference between a real baptism and a ritual baptism, and there's keys. Always there, if you understand the keys, it makes things easy. On a real, with a real baptism, there is no water, and a real change takes place. With a ritual baptism, there is water, and no real change takes place. Now, all you have to do when you're looking at in the scriptures with regards to baptism, is to say, okay, is water involved? Is there water? If there's no water, what kind of baptism does it have to be? The real baptism. And a real change takes place. And vice versa. Same thing we're looking at here. When we're talking about Christ's two returns, we call it the rapture. We're talking about the second advent. You look for the keys. That's why I said you can tell what we're looking at right here, which one it is, because we went in the First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 and following, and it's a detailed explanation of what happens at the rapture, and there is no blaming fire, blazing fire, and there are no powerful angels. And we get in the next verse, there certainly is no judgment. So we know for sure he's talking about the second advent. So we will draw a line in the sand there, and it's going to get more and more interesting as we get closer to chapter 2, and we'll get into chapter 2. Uh, by the way, chapter 2 is a very controversial chapter because it is so loaded with eschatology. And we have to go through it very deliberate so you understand what is, what is taking place, what's happened 
and it's, you can connect the dots and be very secure and be very dogmatic when you're talking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and which one the Bible is talking about whenever you see the Scriptures, you'll be able to tell. And that is important. Let's close. Father, we thank You for the verses that we read tonight that encourage us to leave it in the Lord's hands. We don't take our own revenge. That's Your business. Our business is to keep ourselves straight. Do inventory on our soul many times during the day to make sure that we're on course. We thank You that we don't have to worry about this. This is not our responsibility. You don't even give it to us as an option. And we thank You for that. We also thank You that we are the ones that are going to be blessed. Not because we're so great that there's anything really blessable in us, but that because of Your wonderful grace, we've able to fulfill Your plan because of what You do through us and for us. So we pray that You will help us to remember these things. Next time we get angry and want to take revenge, or the next time we think, is it really worth this suffering? It always is when we are suffering undeservedly and applying Your Word and trusting You. Help us to remember these things, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.